Well, of course, right now in the Bay Area, most of us are cheering for our beloved Golden State Warriors, right? Heading to the finals again, we should know tonight if they'll play the Boston Celtics or the Miami Heat. It's always exciting when a local team is uh, in the championship, in the finals, as it is for basketball. But there's always an occasion to talk about football, am I right? (laughs) So I read this week... I read this week about something that occurred a long time ago, before I was born, October 25, 1964. Famous defensive end for the Minnesota Vikings, Jim Marshall, did something astounding in the world of football. I, uh, by the way, um, when I went to Minnesota a couple months ago now for a class for our denomination, I toured uh, the Vikings Stadium. Uh, there. Uh, and it's a newer one, and indoors is pretty neat, and, and there's lots of history. Uh, and uh, I remember, and I had on my Niners jacket, of course. And uh, they talked to me, the tour guide, about this incident here. Uh, so, Jim Marshall, uh, defensive end of the Vikings, what he did was astounding. So, the, the Niners fumbled, and he picked up the ball, and he ran 66 yards into the end zone. Uh, but what makes it astounding is he ran the wrong direction. And uh, because he did that, the Niners got a safety out of that. And so poor guy, he's got good records, but he's known for uh, this, this infamous play where he ran the wrong direction that resulted, as I said, in a safety for, for the 49ers. Um, I, I can experience that. I appreciate what he experienced. I've told the story before how in junior high, back to basketball, um, we were lined up, there, someone was shooting a free throw, and the ball bounced my direction. I boxed out and got the rebound as much as my seventh grade junior high form could jump. Uh, I managed, and I went back up, shot, made it, but the other team had been shooting the free throw, and so uh, my coach pulled me after that, and um, so I, I do appreciate going the wrong way, not being aware of direction uh, in, a, in an athletic contest. So while there's lessons to my story, to Jim, uh, uh, to Jim Marshall's story, um, really it speaks to the Christian life too. Um, Which direction are we going? So we're in Hebrews, uh, and and we've been in Hebrews 12 for a few weeks, and we keep kind of reminding ourselves of the opening verses of chapter 12. Uh, uh, Daniel Flores, our friend, preached on these a couple weeks ago. Of course, last summer, our whole series was based out of those opening verses, the idea of us being as Christians in this race or this contest, this word that can also mean agony because to run a long-distance race is agonizing. Uh, And it's this picture, though, of the Christian life. And the Apostle Paul picks up on this idea as well. Um, But we are running a race as Christians, we are on this marathon, this journey, and we have a finish line. And, and the, the finish line is not, not just like heaven, like making it, but it's Jesus. And so we're told to, to fix our eyes on Jesus, to keep our eyes on him. He, he is our reward, our prize, our finish line. And, and that is our direction. But, but we can veer off. <laughs> we can forget where we're going. And we need to be reminded of this contest, this marathon. I was reading Mike Kruger, this theologian, who I've been enjoying a lot lately. We're reading a book of his for Sunday Night Theology. And he said this, the issue is not just whether we are running, but whether we are running toward the right finish line. Indeed, the whole book of Hebrews 
has been about exactly this theme. The author is trying to persuade his audience not to run back to the ways of the old covenant, but to run forward toward Jesus. And that is, in fact, what this book has and is about. Jesus is greater than Moses and angels and the old covenant and the priesthood, all of those things. They were all ultimately pointing to him, pointing to him. And now he's come and now he is the one we run to and run toward. But for the audience of this book, and it's, it's hard for us, right? We're 2,000 years removed. They, they, they wanted to go back to some of their older ways. And, and we've talked for many weeks about how we have to kind of work to transport ourselves, right? Most of us don't wake up concerned about our earthly priests and about the status of their walk with God and, you know, are the animals going to be without blemish? Like, none of that stuff. It's so foreign to us. So while we are removed and we have to do some work to understand that this message is applicable to us because we may not be wanting to revert back to an old covenant way of doing life, but, but we can revert back to trying to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and, and you know maybe if I just try harder, God will be happy. Maybe if I clean my life up, then, then God will bless me. And, and, and we... we hopefully, no, we don't believe that, but, but sometimes our actions betray that. And we're so good at, at reverting back to trying to solve our problems on our own, to, to do it our way and, and not to rely on the Lord Jesus. So as we move now, and we are getting close to the end, Lord willing, next week is chapter 13, and, and that'll be Hebrews uh, for, for us. Uh, that's the plan. And so today we come to chapter 12 and, and the final section of chapter 12. And our author today, we're going to hear a new set of, of imagery, uh, a, a new picture. He's, he's talked about running and uh, running this race, but, but today we're going to come to what I'm imagining as a tale of two mountains, a tale of two mountains. Essentially, it's a tale of either going toward Mount Sinai, which represents the Old Covenant, or going toward Mount Zion, which represents the New Covenant. And again, that's the main idea of this book. Jesus is greater, and he represents Mount Zion, the New Jerusalem, all that which will come one day. We, we talked about it in our catechism. We're going to see it in our text today. And we don't want to go back. We need to remind ourselves not to go back. We need the reminder of which way we're running, which way the race is going, so we don't run the wrong way. And so since Jesus is greater, this call to persevere, to endure, to continue, continues to be before us. So we're going to hear our author tell this tale of two mountains, but then Another thing our author's done multiple times in Hebrews, and it's unique in some ways to his letter, his sermonic letter, we have one more warning. So Hebrews has had several warnings for, for God's people to hear, and maybe those gathered that need to hear that aren't God's people yet, but they're checking it out, they're interested. There's, there's warnings, and the Bible is full of them. And, and so our author paints this amazing tale, but then he's got one more warning for us to hear. So let's take a look. Hebrews chapter 12 Verses 18 to 29, if you have a Bible, I would invite you there, if you are not there already, and we will bring this chapter to an end today, and get ready for 
chapter 13 next week. So Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 through 29. For you have not come to what may be touched, uh, blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels and festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See to it, or excuse me, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates that the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. This is the word of the Lord. Well, let's begin this morning looking at this tale of two mountains by looking at Mount Sinai, which represents the Old Covenant. So verses 18 to 21. Notice right away the opening five words in the English, in the ESV. Verse 18, for you have not come, okay? So he's, he's right away wanting to remind them, remember you, church, son and daughter of our king, of our, of our greater high priest, you have not come. And then he goes on to describe what, what is, even though the words are missing, is no, nothing other than, than Mount Sinai, because everything he describes is being pulled from uh, Exodus and Deuteronomy, this experience of, of God showing up on the mountain and, and the law being given and, and, and this really terrible, fearful, fearful sight. He says, you have not come. 
to what may be touched. So that's, again, this idea that it was a physical mountain. Uh, he says, number, secondly, there's, and there's seven things, by the way, and our author beautifully is going to list seven things that represent Mount Sinai in the Old Covenant, and then he's going to contrast it with seven things that represent Mount Zion. Okay, so talking about Mount Sinai, the Old Covenant, he says, you've not come to what may be touched, a, a mountain, right? That's, that's not what your journey is about. It's not about a blazing fire. I'm still in verse 18. Uh, Darkness, he says next, or gloom, or a tempest, like a storm. So so right there, after mentioning the mountain, he mentions these these four additional things. Fire, darkness, uh, gloom, a storm. I mean, again, think about the most intense weather storm you've ever been in. And then multiply that times a million. And, and God's people experience that. Verse 19 lists two additional things. And these are now audible. These others were mostly visual, although, of course, uh, there's probably sound accompanying all of that. But, but then verse 19, he says, You have not come to this place where there was the sound of a trumpet, and the voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. I mean, just imagine. I mean, what do we know? We don't know God showed up. God spoke. God revealed. And yet it was so terrifying, so intense, that they, they begged that, that, that God allow Moses to be the one to speak to them because it was just too much too much. As we get older, right, and we go into venues and the volume is too loud and it's too much, turn it down, (laughs) right? Like they were all feeling that. So they have not come to this as new covenant recipients. Again, everything our author has talked about in the middle of Hebrews, all the work of Jesus being the greater high priest, the, the once for all sacrifice, his blood being superior, like all of that. He, he is bringing, and it seemed like he's brought it to a close, but good preachers can go back and be redundant-ish and need to remind it. So once more, he says, that's, you're, that's not where you've come to. So he's, again, very, very much speaking of these things that were spoken of, as I said, in Exodus and Deuteronomy, these, these clear indications of, of how terrifying this was. Verse 20, they could not endure even the order that was given. And listen to this one order, this one command, this one statement that, that our author gives. Even if a beast touches the mountain, it shall not be stoned. Like, everything else was so intense, but even the fact that if a, an animal touched the mountain, like God's judgment would come. They, they, they couldn't handle that. It was intense, scary, so much so that our author, uh, pulling again from several events related to God showing up, but, but even, even Moses, it says, verse 21, was so terrified that he trembled with fear. It was dreadful, scary, terrifying. And it really is a picture of the holiness of God. Like at that time, in that context, we said last week, what does it mean that God is holy? I mentioned uh, Stuart Briscoe, a famous writer, and when I was a young Christian at college, he spoke at chapel, and he spoke of the holiness of God means that God is distinctively different. Well, yeah. (laughs) And when God showed up there on the mountain, it was clear that he was distinctively different. 
And they, they were terrified. Even Moses was terrified. It was a truly dreadful, scary situation. And so he's, he's telling them, look, you haven't come to that. And, and you can't, obviously, we're you know, too far down history. You can't literally get back there, but you, you wouldn't want to be back there. Really think about it. It's what he's trying to do with these seven things. He wants them to have this vivid picture of, of what that was. Because to go back to that, to, to go back and live those ways that were revealed through this awesome, holy God, would be to go back to the days of things like only animal sacrifices standing between them and God. And let's recall Hebrews 10, 4. Our author said in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 4, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So he's already made that point. So, so you haven't come to this. That's not where you are. In fact, he's going to say in a minute, you have come to, but stop going back. Stop looking that way. You, you'll be enslaved. And that, that way of life cannot save you. So that's one mountain in this tale. The other mountain in this tale of two mountains continues now in verse 22. The new covenant mountain represented by Mount Zion. Verse 22. And again, look at just the opening, the opening words. But you have come. You, you, you have not come, Christian, to that mountain. That, that's, that's not your way of life anymore. No, you, you have come, and now he goes on, and he's going to list seven, again, things that correspond to, to the other seven, okay? You have come, and he says, first off, to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God. Now, Mount Zion was a real historical location. It's the hill on which Jerusalem was built, um, but he's not speaking of right then and there either. He's not saying like the literal Jerusalem here in the first century is where you've come to. Again, everything is forward-looking to that new Jerusalem that will come. Like that's where you've come to, this, this new way that, that's been inaugurated by Jesus. That's a future mountain. Again, this, this poetic picture here uh, contrasting. Um, so yes, it was a real location, but here again, the idea, and he says it, as much in verse 22, you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. So he's wanting them to think about this future Jerusalem. Notice the second thing he says, verse 22, he speaks of how you've come to innumerable angels in festal gathering. The, the idea there is, a joyful assembly. As we were singing happy day this morning, like, like multiply that times a million and that's his picture there. That, that, that place was terrifying. All those, the, the gloom, the, the, the storm, the, the sound. I mean, it was terrifying. This is the opposite. This, the, this new Jerusalem, this mountain of where the living God is. And there's this, this, gathering of innumerable angels in festal gathering. This word is, is only used here uh, in the New Testament, but in secular literature of the day, it was used of parties uh, of, of the celebratory atmosphere, especially 
at annual athletic competitions like the Olympics, right? Which fits our authors talking about this race. Well, I mean, imagine, think again, basketball, right? The, the parades that the victorious teams get to have or, or the winner of the Super Bowl has, those celebrations big in the arena when time runs out and you've won. Like again, multiply that out. And that's what you've come to. Then he says in verse 23, and to the assembly, now I love the English standard version, but at least they put a little footnote directing you that this word assembly means church, or it's the same word, church, the ecclesia. You, and, and I think we, we could put that word in there. You have come to the church, the gathering, the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. Now, when we hear firstborn, we typically think of Jesus, and he is the firstborn uh, par excellence, if you will. But, but here, he's talking about how we, as Christians, we share in that inheritance as being part of this assembly, this universal church assembly gathering, the firstborn enrolled in heaven. And the idea there, again, is something that the Bible speaks of, this, this, this registry, this, this place where our names are written in heaven. Exodus speaks of this type of a registry. The Psalms do. Isaiah does. Daniel. Jesus said in Luke 10.20 that we are to rejoice that our names are written in heaven, this, this idea. So we, we are there. That's where we've come, this, this place where the living God is, where, where there's this crazy championship rejoicing festival of angels to this assembly, this gathering of those who are the firstborn enrolled in heaven. He continues in verse 23, the fourth thing he says, to God, the judge of all. And that sort of seems out of place, but if, but if, if we've experienced the grace of God because of Jesus, if we know our sins have been dealt with. His righteousness has been imputed to us. If we're gonna be with him one day when the new heaven and, and new earth come down, then the, the God, the living God, who's the judge, that, that doesn't terrify us. That's a good thing. God's gonna make things right. He's a good and holy, righteous judge. He, he then says, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Probably this is a reference to the dead uh, saints of old. And again, within our broader context, right? Hebrews 11, the hall of faith, all those, what we think of as Old Testament saints who have gone before, that, that great cloud of witnesses, as he says in verse one, that surround us. And again, just to return to that, that imagery for a minute, right? I mean, imagine, imagine uh, you get to go to Levi's Stadium for a Niners game. I can't get away from football today, Sorry. And if you've been there or if you haven't, if you had a chance one day in the past to go to Candlestick, you, you walk in. And of course, there's all these fans uh, cheering on the, the 100 or so people on the field, the, the 22 that'll be playing and, and all the others. But you have these banners, these, these, these jerseys or whatever these, of, of these Hall of Fame people. And, and you're there and there's 16 Montana. And... and I bring that up because when we hear, right, that we're surrounded by clouds of witnesses, we tend to think like, oh, we're, we're down in the field and everybody's cheering us on, right? Moses is up there going, you can do it, Paul. Okay. Probably it's more like I ought to be encouraged that as I'm on this race, 
that, oh, there's, there's Moses, and he did it. He, he walked and ran this race in trust, and he's worshiping God, and, and, and he did it. And, and there's all these others, just like the players at Levi Stadium today, they're looking up and they're seeing number 16, Montana, number 80, Jerry Rice. And, and the fact that they did it, they, then these, these players have the courage to play. And so here, this place where we've come, it includes the spirits of the righteous made perfect. And a picture, again, of the, the sanctification that happens. We are saved, forgiven, and, and declared to be a saint. We talked about that last week, but we are uh, experientially becoming what is true of us. And once we die and are glorified, then it's done. The sin is gone. The stubborn, sinful tendencies we fall back into, those patterns, those habits. When, when we leave this life, it's done. It's cleared up. It's fixed. And so there's these spirits of the righteous that have been made perfect. That 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 cloud of witnesses, I think, is the picture. Then verse 24, it still gets better. What have we come to? Look at verse 24. He says, and to Jesus, to Jesus, the, the one who we get at the finish line. And look what he says about Jesus. He's the mediator of the new covenant. And, and he's already talked about that, this whole book. Jesus is the mediator. His, he's the one representing us. He's our advocate in heaven. That's who we get. That's who we have, Jesus. And then finally, it wouldn't be Hebrews if there wasn't another mention of blood. Verse uh, 24, the seventh item that we've come to, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Amen. Jesus' blood speaks a better word. Abel, his blood, of course, Abel killed his brother Cain. And it speaks there in Genesis 4 that, that um, Abel's blood metaphorically cries out, cries out to God for judgment on Cain for what he did. Well, if that's what Abel's blood cries out for, well, then Jesus' blood, what does it cry out? It cries out that that. People are forgiven. They're not guilty anymore. They've been cleansed. It's finished. It's finished. Yes, Jesus' blood speaks a better word. Next time you hear Matt Redman's version of uh, nothing but the blood of Jesus, he, he references this verse in his song. Your blood speaks a better word. I'm not going to sing it, but you can punch that on your playlist for the way home. One famous commentator summarizes it like this. Every aspect of the vision provides encouragement for coming boldly into the presence of God, Hebrews 4.16. We can come boldly now in anticipation of what we've come to one day. The atmosphere at Mount Zion is festive. The frightening visual imagery of blazing fire, darkness, gloom, it fades before the reality of the city of the living God, heavenly Jerusalem. The cacophony of whirlwind, trumpet blast, the sound of words is muted and replaced by joyful praise of angels and festal gathering. The trembling congregation of Israel gathered solemnly at the base of the mountain is superseded by the assembly, the church, the gathering of those whose names are permanently inscribed in the heavenly archives. An overwhelming impression of the unapproachability of God is eclipsed 
in the experience of full access to the presence of God and to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. Amen. Amen to that. Which mountain are you headed for? That's what our author is saying to his first audience and for us. You haven't come to that. So stop going back. In other words, stop trying to earn your way. So Christian, hear that. Head toward what you've come to. That You would experience the realities that are true of you. And if you have yet to believe, which one do you want? Which mountain, which, which covenant are you going to trust in? The old covenant where it's about what you do to perform, to earn, which can't save you, or to the covenant that, that spells done, it's finished for you. So there's, there's grace in this tale of two mountains. But just briefly, our author does give a final warning. And as I already said, this is something sort of unique to Hebrews. There's five or six specific warning passages. And in our day, we, we would say, oh, you know, pastor, you know, it was so good up to this point. Like, end right there, right? Tale of two mountains, and it's clear which one we want to go. And now you're going to go into this. <laughs> We'll get there in a second, actually. Look at verse 25. In, in the ESV, it's just the word see. But, but really, the idea is see to it. Look, look out for, be on, be on guard against. Like It's a warning, right? It's like driving, and, and all of a sudden, there's a hazard sign warning you of something. And so here, here it comes. Our writer says, verse 25, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. In some ways, I love this warning right here. I mean, this is, this is the, the preacher's prayer. Throughout the week, my prayers, I prepare my prayer in the morning before I come up. Paul, see too that you hear these words that you're about to Give and, and God, please help the church see to it that they hear from you. But here's the warning. See to it. Be careful. Watch out for it. Be on the alert that you do not refuse him, God, who's speaking. God is speaking in this tale of two mountains. God is speaking in this reminder of what the old covenant was and what the new covenant is and, and will be. And then he, he flushes out this warning. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, and here again, he's done this a couple other times, um, given an, ar- an argument from lesser to greater. If, if they were dealt with and judged by refusing God, by not listening to God, who from earth warned in this, yes, granted, terrifying, fearful context and... and and, and they didn't, most of them. They, they were held accountable. If, if they did not escape, much less the end of verse 25, will we escape? Now, if we reject him who warns 
from heaven, the living God who, who is warning us through the, the message of grace, the message of this free offer, this two cities to mountain tail, sorry, this picture through this whole book of the old way. And, but now know the blood of Jesus, the new high priest, the great high priest, there's no one greater. Like that's the message. And if we, if he dealt with them who heard on earth, how much more will we have to deal with God's judgment if we reject him? That is, if we do not hear him who's speaking. He goes on, verse 26. At that time, his voice shook the earth. Right? When God spoke, like, and it speaks of that there in the context of Exodus and Deuteronomy, like they were shaking physically of, of the earth as God spoke. So again, argument from lesser to greater. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised. And, and again, our author loves the Old Testament, loves the scriptures. And now he quotes the minor prophet Haggai, chapter two, verse six. Now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. Again, this phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, things like earthly cities, like Jerusalem, like earthly mountains, like Mount Sinai. The removal of things that are indicates the removal of things that are shaken, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. So take a look at the screen, Revelation 21, verses 1 to 4. I just, I'm going to look in with you as I read. Speaking of the new heaven, John wrote, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. This is what we spoke of in our catechism. Our comfort is this. And if God shook before, how much more will he shake when he comes and when this new City and new heaven come. See to it that you do not refuse him who's speaking, who's offering you his grace. See to it that you don't turn away and, and, and reject grace, which is to reject Christ. In response, our author says, therefore... Verse 28, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe 
Two, two responses our preacher, our, our writer gives. Be thankful and grateful and worship appropriately. And that's not speaking of how we sing <laughs> only or even really at all, but the whole notion of, of, of our life devoted to God, how we live, how we run, which direction we're going. Be grateful and thankful, and out of your gratefulness and thankfulness for, for receiving this kingdom, again, remember what it says, verse 22, but you have come, this is your, your place, so be thankful for, for this kingdom that cannot be shaken. And therefore, offer acceptable worship with reverence and awe, right? And this is, this is one of the mysteries of, of walking with God. On the one hand, we can just, you know, God, right now I'm struggling with this thought about that, this, help me, right? And, and like, it's God's our best friend right there, accessible. And also God is God. And, and he's omniscient and omnipresent and, and, and like powerful and could do anything. And like he holds the world in his hands and, and we live and breathe because he gives us life. And, and whoa, what must he be like? And, and so our author ends this section, ends chapter 12 for us, verse 29. For our God is a consuming fire. Which again is a picture of his holiness among so much. So see to it that you don't refuse him who speaks. I love that picture in the lion and the witch in the wardrobe. And, and kids, if you're in the room listening to me today, kids, I got your attention. Tell your grown-up, please read to me the Chronicles of Narnia again, because maybe they've read it to you already, but it, it's time again. And start with Lion and the Witch in the Wardrobe. It's the best one to start with. I love that picture in, in that book where there's this dialogue about Aslan, about the lion. And, and the question comes up, is, is he safe? And the response comes, of course he isn't safe. He's a lion. But he's good. Is God safe? Of course he isn't safe. He's a consuming fire. If he judged, he will judge. But we have not come, if we're in Christ, but we have come to this grace-filled, joyful place. And when the lion, the lamb returns and the new heavens and new earth come, it's gonna be an amazing celebration. He's good. So do not turn your back on him. Do not refuse him who's speaking. <clears throat> so that's a warning we need to hear. It's a warning we need to give. Which mountain are you headed for? Hear his voice. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this writer. We don't know who it is. We can't say thank you for Peter or Paul or Luke or John. We don't know. But as we as a church near the end of our study in this book, over 20 sermons now, I, I thank you personally that we've walked through this. It's been good for my soul. And I pray that it has been good for us as a church. And I pray today's word would be good for us to consider a tale of two mountains and to consider which direction we're to be heading and to be reminded to be headed toward Mount Zion, where we have come because Jesus 
did the work. It's done. It is finished. And we respond to that. And, and I pray we wouldn't reject him who speaks. And we'd hear these warnings and respond to you. That one who invites us to come when we're heavy and weary, because you'll give us rest. The one who is rest, true rest, the Lord Jesus. The one who's going to come again one day. So may we be ready, even as your word calls us to that. I, I pray for Christ's sake, in Jesus' name.